This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, I visit with a Belgian-born multimedia artist and designer currently living in the Los Angeles Arts District. Her projects include site-specific permanent and temporary murals, as well as exhibitions in fine art galleries. She is known for her exploration of color, topography, geography, and architecture amalgamations, all infused with a strong sense of optimism. She discusses the lifespan of a mural, the time invested in a new commission from concept to execution, and she shares the impact that a family house fire has had on her perspective. Coming up to energize our collective creativity is colorful multidisciplinary artist and cat appreciator, Caroline Guys. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. Hello, thank you for having me. It's so fun to meet new people in this way. And especially you as a visual artist, I just, I didn't know anything. And then suddenly I was taking this bath in color and shape and design. These are sort of grown up play dates. I'm all for it. (laughs) Great. Well, what I did mention is that you do a lot of murals. Let's just start there and tell me how a mural as a form of expression how that ignites you? It really depends because every mural is site specific. It really depends on the client or if I'm painting, I've now in the last couple of years in our, in our new spot, I still call it our new spot, but I've now painted every wall in, in our apartment, in our loft. So when I'm painting for myself versus when I'm painting for a client, it's a bit of a different process. Uh, when I paint for myself, I don't plan at all um, what I'm going to paint, but when I'm painting for a client, and that's a different story. And it really depends on what the client wants, where that freedom is. Does the client, is the client giving me freedom? Are they not giving me freedom? And that kind of, you know, dictates um, what the process is going to be for the conceptualization. That really just gives a different beginning to each project and having that initial conversation with the client on what the inspiration is for, for the wall and a lot of times a client is like, well, I'm not, I, I don't know what I want. What do you suggest? You know, and then it'll go into a discussion about a site specific. Is the mural exterior? Is it interior? What, are, what is the landscape if it's exterior? What's the interior space looks like? So all of that really just depends. And it's always a fun challenge to be able to get to that point with a client that and from conceptualization, they're like, that's it. That's the right concept. That's the one that we're going to go with. There's also been the case where, you know, you go through a few conceptualizations and they're like, it's just not quite right. You know, and I've had clients that walk away that, you know, have in in the meantime already worked with several other muralists for paid concepts. And they just, they can't decide whether if it's like a board of directors or like, we just can't decide on a concept. And so it just really depends on 
on the client. It's definitely a, a fun challenge. <laughs> it does seem like a challenge. You're having a relationship with the space when you talk about site-specific, but you also have this relationship with who's hiring you mm-hmm. and what's the messaging or what's the purpose of sometimes function. I saw a uh, boutique hotel that you did in downtown LA where you did large-scale line drawings and they served as a visual guide to to things like the elevator that was going to the roof or something. So the row is not a hotel, but it's mostly office space. And then it's got a coffee shop downstairs. Yeah. So that's at the row in downtown. Yeah. And that was, you know, I was hired by the interior designer, Preen Inc., who's a local interior design firm in Chinatown. That was what, 2018, 2019. When we initially met, we spoke about, as an interior designer, she was really focused on a specific aesthetic of my artwork. So she knew exactly what she wanted. And with her, it was very much a collaboration on every step of the way of the conceptualization for that project. I rented a phase one camera, which is a museum quality camera that can print basically really high res. Like when you see fashion billboards or, you know, you see some of those really big uh, billboards or even in museums that it's basically, you know, when you, when you, for instance, when you print from your phone, like your iPhone, you're going to get maximum size nine by 13 inches. And that's with the new camera, right? With the new, with the new iPhone. However, if you take a phase one camera, you can print up to 60 feet or 20 feet or 30 feet, and it doesn't lose any resolution. So I had rented the phase one camera to take it out to Joshua tree to photograph Joshua tree. And then from there, I amalgamated my linear vortex work an illustrator, an Adobe Illustrator, which is one of my holy, holy favorite <laughs> programs that I use. So from there took the, because there was only one, it was five, five walls that we did for that project. And one of the five is a photograph amalgamated with linear vortex work that I took from like, so if I had, I had the Joshua Tree photo and then I actually illustrated parts of the landscape. And then from there, twisted it and turned it and played with it in Illustrator to then be able to get that vortex, the patterns within the vortex. So the inspiration does come. I noticed that about, you have lots of vortexes in your work. It all seems to come from, or be inspired a lot of it from the natural world, or maybe the cityscape or something along the way. But it, All of it, yeah. <laughs> So it's kind of got a weird future feel, but it's got this retro 80s throwback kind of vibe going on there too. Yeah. And that really depends on the color palettes. When you play with different color palettes, it's going to give you a different feel aesthetic that will take you back to whether it's the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Color palette can really change how that's viewed. That project, we won hospitality design winner for select service in the public space category in 2019, which was quite an honor to to be a part of that. My Vortex work in general is now longtime inspired by my father's art collection and op art. So op art is optical illusion art. It's an era of art that has now really come full force in the art world, but op art is stemmed from the 60s. Well, let's talk about that early influence of your dad, because I know that I read something about you going out with your father to art auctions and flea markets 
in search of specific things. At what age were you doing that? Four, five, six, seven. <laughs> we lived in Belgium until I was three. We moved to Florida in 83. My father had a art gallery with a partner of his in Antwerp, Belgium, before we moved to the States. And what he collected at that time was 18th, 19th century Flemish and French paintings. So very dark, very, you know, still lifes, portraits, sculpture, bronze sculpture. And he sold his half of the gallery to his partner before we moved to the States. And the reason why we moved to the States was because he wanted to become a land developer. And that he did alongside collecting art. And so what was it? 1989, we had a house fire. And so all of the collection that was his, his personal collection, we lost everything. Mm. There was maybe three, three pieces, no paintings. Every, all the paintings were gone, but it was like an two armoires, a side dresser and a lamp. Those were the wow. only pieces. Yeah. After that, I realize now as I've gotten older and that experience that from there he started collecting the first thing that he was really into when we went to flea markets and auctions was Murano glass. So from the forties, the fifties, the sixties, and that's where the color really started to, it was quite a huge shift in what he collected before. And then he started collecting paintings and paintings from 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, now up until the 90s, and then he has some of my work. So, yeah, over those years, it's it's. Uh, I always went with him, and and that was our that was our bonding experience, and it just always gets me emotional as I've literally just I'm in the midst of archiving his 300 plus collection, digitizing them, getting ready to launch his uh, part of his collection on my website in the coming weeks. That's exciting. It's very, very tragic to hear of that loss, especially because it's a thing that can't be recovered. Yeah. That is a thing that you grieve a, a very long time because it is not replaceable specifically. But it is interesting to hear the details because it feels like both his interest in developing the real estate, the idea of you seeing the art world and then seeing landscape and places, cityscapes, and then the move to Miami. I see that reflected in the colors that you choose. There's lots of beachy and pastel-y. That must have been from Belgium to, to Miami, must have been like, like an explosion of color. We moved to Orlando from Belgium, but then I, I lived in Gainesville for college and then moved down to Fort Lauderdale, finishing college, and then Miami. So Florida as a whole, you know, and obviously the sun and the beaches and, you know, that's definitely played a role over time and driving around with my dad to, yes, we went to, you know, we went to auctions and flea markets, but then I also drove around with him looking at land. And so I would be in the, in the, you know, passenger seat, writing down numbers for, you know, for those contacts. And now just in the last year, he's just selling his last, his last property. And I designed the sign for it. So it's like a full, I love it. Full circle moment. Lots of, lots of those. But yeah, as far as, you know, architecture has played a role in my work for a long time. Really what pushed that was visually for me was my first trip to New York in 99. I was 19. And so that was the first time visiting New York. And literally from there, it was just like, my mind was just 
blown. Then I started to get into, this was also early Google days of sitting at my desk at home and, and during college and Googling. I had just seen Araka, the film. That's a Brazilian documentary, right? Yes, correct. And that is how I started to be inspired by the favelas. And so then I went into this internet hole of doing all this research of favelas. And that's where the favela series, it first started by, by drawings in 2004, 2005. And then I started painting them abstractly in 2008, 2009. So let's bring the listener on the ride by telling him what the favelas are. Sure. Yeah. The favelas are, well, they're in multiple countries in, um, in South America and they're known as shanty towns, the slums, you know, have different, different nicknames and it's in underdeveloped areas, underdeveloped cities. And basically the favelas are, you know, there's no real, like they're built basically with anything that is found in the remote area of what can be built with construction. And often they are just scattered on a hill, just box after box touching each other on top, using each other sometimes just for structure to stay upright. So I saw some of those. And what's interesting is that's a really almost poverty stricken areas, but the way that you use color and you use design, it's kind of an interesting thing. It draws us really in. It feels like a tightly congested living situation, but it kind of, I don't want to call it Dr. Seuss, but it has, it has like a, like the boxes and the colors are like, feels like a kid's fort. Like yeah. that you can crawl from one box to the next. So let's talk about your optimism and in, in choice in the shape and the color. Were you always from a little kid optimistic about things or did that, did you make a choice in your work to shine a light on these things in a different way? Was I always optimistic growing up? No. I mean, I, I was a teen. I was, I think even throughout hardships, especially the fire, moving to the States, always feeling connected to to being in the States, but then also feel very Belgian. I have my roots are, are deep as, as far as that goes. And over the years and, and through hardships and through seeing what other people create, other artists and and for me, it's important to keep that optimism. And, and that's how I represent myself, because I feel like there's enough shit in the world. <laughs> yeah. For me, it's important to keep that positive outlook on life. And there's enough difficulties that we go through. And as we get older, and it's just a constant thing that why, for me, it just doesn't make sense to, to recreate that. Fortunately for me, up till this point, I have never had an artist block. Mm -hmm. It just comes in it. Something that I always say too, is that working within different mediums, one hour I'm, I'm illustrating an, an illustrator, the next I'm painting, the next I'm writing a pitch, the next I'm working on a portfolio, then I'm working on, it's just a constant bouncing around and that fuels my velocity inspiration wise that it just doesn't ever stop. I've heard from a few other people that they've never experienced artist block because they have so much going on. We had uh, Jermaine Rogers on and he thought his biggest fear is that he's going to die with some of the stuff inside him that he won't have time to, to complete. And that fascinated me because conversely, we've heard people where they'll go through a long personal winter, everything gets in their way and they just expressing themselves that way. It hurts. And I think that that's part of the sensitivity of artists is to try to find that, 
place, that flow, that groove. I guess this question I have about your your positive approach is you have private murals and you have public murals. So the public murals are really a statement that are out in the world. You're changing the side of a building or something of that nature. So especially when they trust you or they say, what do you think? You're actually putting messages out that people pass by every day. It might be meditative. It might be, again, your optimism. When you get that, when you get carte blanche to, to make something, where does your mind go in terms of what kind of legacy you want to leave on a cityscape? Because I work in multimedia, there's so many things I want to leave behind. My husband and I were choosing not to have kids, and that's the way that we're going. With that being said, I have a lot more say I have a lot more time, but I'm also in the midst of helping my parents with with a lot of things. So that's its own thing. But as far as leaving something behind, I mean, there's, you know, I have fortunate also to have, you know, a lot of friends that, you know, I'm I'm an auntie and and even within the family that I want to be able to leave my work to them and for others to enjoy. I mean, it's, it's, for instance, with the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures, I have two, you know, two murals there, the Hayao Miyazaki retrospective, which is the largest in my studio to date. And so that one is actually, you know, we finished that one last summer and that one is getting painted over in June, June 5th is the closing date. And then the backdrop exhibition is an ongoing. When you look at it like that in the museum sense, it's, or with other clients, you know, what is the longevity of, of a mural? And these days, I don't think most murals last longer than five to 10 years. I think with that being said, murals become, for the most part, a more temporary installation, even if it, I mean, yes, what is temporary, right? Is temporary a year? Is it five years? Is it still still temporary, right? It's, it's nothing ever permanent. But with fine art that I create, paintings, even digital art that's printed, limited editions, drawings, all of my work in sketchbooks, that's more permanent. So that's work that can be forever passed on and, and go into go into museums and go into to galleries and, and permanent collections. I wouldn't ever want to just be in the commercial art world doing just murals, and I wouldn't want to just be in the fine art world. I want to being able to go, as I say, I, I sway back and forth between the commercial art worlds and the fine art worlds. For me, that's definitely a great place to be because of being able to be flexible within within both of those places. Yeah, and you're great at both of them. Each project is a chapter in your life and a story to be told from, as you say, from concept all the way to execution. And then when you talk about it closing, does that mean the walls get painted over by somebody comes in with a roller and turns them all white again or what? Yes. <laughs> well, given the amount of murals that you've done and the way you do design, and this is probably an unfair question, but I notice a lot of color, a lot of shapes, a lot of patterns. If you had to put those in an order of importance to you, color, shape, and pattern, what would you say? Uh, like if one had to be taken away, what would happen? Oof. <laughs> <laughs> You're on a lifeboat and you can only keep two of them. I'm like, as you see me with like multiple colors and patterns behind me and shapes. <laughs> colors, number one. It's always been number one. Probably shapes, number two, three patterns. That's pretty tough. <laughs> tough question. No, I know that they, they're integrated in the way that you use them, but I guess maybe that's what I predicted is that pattern might be the thing that you could break up with a little bit if you had to. But <laughs> I noticed in 
snooping around your website that you have some cats. And so I think about cats and I don't know how many you have. You can tell me, but three. <laughs> okay. So cats wandering around an artist studio. I think about occasionally you'll find a cat here, whatever, but do you have works that have paw prints in it that have stepped in a bucket of blue paint or anything of that nature? Yes. Over time, that has most certainly happened. <laughs> so they have free reign of the studio? They do. They're actually having a snooze on the couch as we speak <laughs> here in the studio. I've had cats since I moved away to college and now I'm on my, I guess we would call second generation of, of three cats and have a, a 10 year old and a six year old and a five year old. Those are, yeah, those are our little, those are our kids, our furry kids. <laughs> but they're a constant company when you're painting. Yeah. Depending on what I'm, what I'm working on, if I'm painting or if I'm, you know, if I'm designing on the computer, if it's lunchtime, then they're, you know, definitely going to let me know it's lunchtime and they'll come up on the computer desk or if I'm painting and they're going to be wagging their tails in front of, in front of me. Well, I have two cats that my, my son's picked out. What I find is that they ignore me completely most of the time, <laughs> but if I put anything down, if I put a pile of paper or I put down a bathtub, anything square, they go and sit on it which can include my laptop, any of that. And I guess I wondered whether it was an obstacle because if I have a Zoom meeting, inevitably some cat's butt is in the camera. Yes, yes. I don't know if you saw one of them. She she made her little presence earlier um, and now she's back on the couch. She's like, mom's busy. I'm going to have a little bit more of a snooze. What other kinds of things are you inspired by that non-visually, for example, music, things like that? Do you, do you play music and attack it with paint always music music is always playing when i'm creating always always yeah i mean maybe one percent out of you know a hundred is it a quiet day in the studio with no music but no usually not i listen to all sorts of music ranging anywhere from 40s 50s 60s 70s 80s <laughs> 90s current uh i don't listen to current pop or yeah or hip-hop really I'm, I'm more in the older school but current stuff is more of the indie and more electronic music. You know, I've worked with music labels in the past. I have a tech house label with a friend of mine in the UK that was born out of COVID baby. That was, uh, we launched last January and uh, I do the vocals. It's not, it's not singing. It's more of like spoken word, I guess you could say. And he does all the producing of the music. We've got like five five or six songs and working on an, um, releasing an album in the coming months. And so music's always been a huge influence in my work. In earlier years, I was including versions of lyrics and collages. Writing is a huge influence just in general. I write a lot. I have about 30 sketchbooks here in my studio that are from over the years. There's been some that have been lost, but yeah, I've got lots of writing. But yes, music is a huge, huge inspiration. Yeah. What kind of themes do you use? So most of the writings for the tracks have been based off of being being apart from, from loved ones during the pandemic. And a lot of my work is tied to nostalgia. Since the beginning of the pandemic and not being able to visit my, my parents and other loved ones, growing up in Florida is it's definitely its, its own thing. My parents, I'm grateful for as much as you know, I always said to my parents, why would you take us from, from Antwerp to, to Orlando? There was so much culture in, in Antwerp and in, in Belgium and being in a bigger city, basically, 
versus, I mean, now Orlando's huge, but back then, you know, Orlando wasn't very cultural. It's gotten way more cultural since I've left. Would I want to move back? No, but I do. I enjoy spending time with my parents there and, and, and they designed, they designed their house. It's a custom house in 89, 90. That was, that was, we had, they were designing, the house was already in construction when our previous house had burned down. So we had stayed with uh, some other friends in the meantime while it was finishing, but their house to me, after college, I worked for architecture firms for 12 years in marketing. And so that's also how architecture has been a huge influence in my work. So going back to their house is inspiring. They have a beautiful Beautiful home. It's a very throwback to the 90s and it's really, really good condition along with, you know, all the collection of of art and furniture. But so since the beginning of the pandemic, and I mean, now I, I go to see them every month, but since the beginning of the pandemic. So in general, I dream every night. I wake up in the morning and I remember my dreams. It's just a constant visual journey that I go on and when I'm sleeping. And Every night since the beginning of the pandemic and to this day, I dream about being at their home Mm. and I dream about being back with them in their neighborhood. And it's just had a huge impact on my life. And so in the in the hopes of preserving their home after after they're gone and a huge influence of mid-century modern and Palm Springs and here in L.A., And so with their home, it's more of the 90s, 80s, 90s aesthetic. After having worked for different architecture firms and that, you know, also work in preservation, that's been a huge uh, influence along the way and to want to preserve their home. I imagine also, I'm not a psychologist, but the idea that you lost a home to a fire puts a extra importance on the legacy of the home they're in now and who they are is a a way of keeping them alive and the art alive. Yeah. Extra protective tissue that you're creating around this. Yeah. And I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about it like that. So yes. Yeah. Yeah, But I think that's valuable. Sometimes to know what we prioritize and what we're passionate about when we can have the aha of this is non-negotiable. This is something that I will do uh, with all at all costs, which I found with projects that most people who hire you, they want a person that's willing to lose sleep over it. They like it. They like being a part of the dialogue and saying, it'd be fun to have a piece of art here, but they don't want to stay up around the clock. They don't want to devote 140 hours. They don't want to <laughs> even crane their neck. You know what I mean? They, Which is what's interesting when you're doing the conceptual and they're passing on drawings and you just have to, I guess, have an open-mindedness about landing at something that satisfies you as an artist and them as the client. It really depends on the client. So Dunn Edwards Paints, I've now been working with them for four years on different mural collaborations. They're pretty much the one of the only clients that gives me free reign. They have that trust in me that what I'm going to come up with is amazing. As long as you're using their paints. Absolutely. <laughs> in the all of the little color palettes uh, in the Dunn Edwards collection, What color represents you at this moment in your life? So with Dunn Edwards Paints, you know, I've been collaborating with them for for five years on on different projects, mostly murals and installations. And so each year they they release five different color stories. And within those five different color stories are 12 colors each. 
each color story has a name to them. And so they, we were in discussion last year for this year's color palettes. And so they shared a palette of 12 colors. It's called the Elysian palette. And, you know, she shared with me, Sarah McLean, who's their color expert. And so she comes up, she's the person that comes up with all these colors. She comes up with the names, she comes up with the stories. And so she came up with the five different palettes each year. So Elysian is uh, the color palette that I correlated with. And it's a combination of the digital world and the real world and a very futuristic color palette, like what you were saying earlier, but still being present day. And so there's some different pastel colors, pops, definitely pops, uh, pops of color and just how it correlates to my work as well. Where do you lean in terms of the color wheel? Are you a person that lives in the pink purple zone or in the yellow orange mustard zone or it depends on the day okay (laughs) it depends on the day and uh just the mood i mean if you look at my work it's as far as like from series you know over the years my palettes keep evolving i never have the same palette from different series when you look at my work from the early aughts compared to now back then i was more deep reds and and grays and browns and blues. And each year I mold into different palettes and I, I, I invent new palettes that, that I'm, you know, that I'm feeling. And I don't think that that's ever going to (laughs) change. No, no, it's great. It feels like it might be an emotional journey a little bit, which is exploring things that make you feel a certain way or that you're able to express yourself. I I found uh, an interesting grouping of paintings of yours where it looked like you were sort of voyeuristically looking through windows of other people's decor and their furnitures. I mean, it's very retro, but at the same time, it's kind of like, oh, this is like a rear bedroom movie where I'm like, oh, I can, I can just look around this painting and see what inspired that particular series. Yeah. So Juliet's lofts, Juliet is my middle name after my mom's mom. When I lived in Miami specifically, I had met, I had then met my neighbor that was in the building next to me. And, you know, I would see him from time to time just doing his thing and and walking around his apartment. And he was an architect. And we we then, you know, had a lot of discussions and became just, and, and of course, being in New York and, you know, all of the, just the voluminous of a city and being able to see other people in their windows. And, For me, it's yes, it's voyeuristic, but not in a sexual way. It's just more of like, are they in a new building? Are they in, you know, an older building? Has the building been preserved? What kinds of things does the tenant have in their, in their apartment? Is it, you know, very basic stripped down apartment with a bed and side table and that's it? Or do they have a lot of artwork? Do they have antiques? That's something that's also come from the architectural uh, standpoint, in addition to interior design and my work is also in so that that series specifically was also inspired by mid-century modern over the years is tying it back to to colors and you know when i think about like fashion fashion interior design those have been you know long-term long-term long-time inspirations growing up the brand esprit for me was huge inspiration to my earlier work and and now even again i've been collecting esprit um, you know, very 80s, very early 90s, the pops of color, the shapes. So over time, there's been different standpoints of, of what's what's been inspiring. 
If you were to give advice to a young artist in terms of how to look at the world and to find themselves, you know, in their work, what kind of advice would you give them as they search for their own voice? I would say experiment, 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 and try different mediums. Don't just stick to painting. Don't just stick to drawing. It's really important to to be able to do the different mediums because they really just inspire one thing to another. At least for me, I mean, when I've had conversations with other artists, multi multimedia artists, they you know they feel the same way. Not to pigeon pigeonhole yourself into a specific aesthetic. Be able to work in different aesthetics and not just be a fine artist. For me, over the years of, you know, because I I just got, I mean, just got my green card, but that's now four and a half years ago, which was part of my journey of, I went to business school, I got my degree in, in, in real estate and marketing, which was a push from my dad, but it was also at that time we didn't know about, my dad claims to not have known about the artist visa, he always said, I want you to stand on your own two feet with a mm. business degree. And from there, that's how I got into architecture. And from, from there, also being able to market myself. And I spent 90% of my job at architecture firms was responding to RFPs and RFQs, uh, requests for proposal, requests for qualifications and designing them. And so that became a huge graphic design wise, that became a huge influence in my digital work, but then also being able for me to be able to pitch to clients and in my own business. And so when I went on my own, started my own practice in October, 2017, after 12 years of of being in marketing for architecture, interior design, real estate firms, ever since I was little, I wanted to have my own design studio. What that looked like, I had no idea when I was young, but now over the years of Having a when I had a full time career in marketing for the firms, you know, I was always alongside painting, drawing, designing. It was a constant factor in my life, regardless if I had a full time job. And I knew at some point I would make that I would make that dream come true once I got my green card. I always said to my dad when I was in business school, I was like, I hated it, mm. and it was it was tough for me, and I just wanted to to go to art school and I didn't, I'm not classically trained. I did have some early art education in in elementary, middle and high school and a couple of uh, electives in college, but I am self-taught. I know that, you know, with that comes its things. I'm constantly learning on my own in my own practice. There's things that I didn't learn by going to fine art school, but I think being able to marry the business and being an artist because that's one thing that I'm very, I'm very grateful for is that I, what for me and my journey, that as much as I kicked and screamed in those college years, you know, where it got me to in that journey of being able to know how to start my own business and market myself because marketing is literally 75% of my business. <laughs> yeah, no, it absolutely is. Here's the interesting thing. Many artists in many fields, songwriters, comedians, all sorts of folks don't really have a business brain. And so, therefore, they don't know the price point. They don't know how to get it out there. They don't know how to sell. So, they rely on partners, whether that's an agent or manager or somebody along the way, who is business savvy. But if they're left to their own devices, for all the talent they have or all the vision of what they do or what their voice is, you still have to have an audience and you still have to create revenue to maintain your relationship with the art. 
there's no, I don't think, any reason for there to be a starving artist category. I don't think that everybody should become a business person or go to business college. But I do think you have to open your mind to it because everything is sales. It doesn't matter. Dating is sales. You're selling yourself. Insurance is sales. You know, the medical field, it's all sales. And, you know, once you kind of come to grips with that relationship of it, you don't have to sell anything you're not passionate about. And when you're selling your own art, sometimes people have, there's a humbleness or whatever where they don't want to sell themselves, but you can market the work and you can, as an artist, design an inviting portal through a website, through a gallery that extends who you are. I would equate it to perfumes, which is a perfume is just a smell until it gets marketed, until it gets a name, until they have the portrait of the smoke going up, until they get a celebrity to endorse it, right? It's it's something that's ethereal, but once it gets sort of contained in something, a bottle that has an aesthetic shape and something, you know, then then it becomes a commodity. And I feel like that's not a sellout, especially if you are, as a designer, designing your brand and it it's in tune with who you are. And it, it sort of amplifies your love of color, your love of shape, of pattern, of design, those sorts of things. And I think artists feel like, well, I'm not going to go sell my work or I'm not, somebody's got to discover me. I want, you know, everybody's waiting for that, you know, one patron that has a big pile of money. And it does happen, but it's yeah. just not, it's not the way to, you know, keep Cocoa Puffs in, in the cupboard. Yeah, no, you've got to, you've got to go out and, and, and get it. And it's just a constant, just yesterday after four or five months of, of being able to, to close a, close a deal for mural process and it's constant follow-up with the client, you know, of like, okay, where are we, you know, where are we in this process? Like, and, and sometimes a mural can, can happen and, and close a deal in a week, but a lot of times it's, it's months of discussion, even just with getting my work out there. It's, it's constant. It's every day. It's every day pitching to different clients and collectors and can't just sit around and wait for it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, you know, and something that I'm, I'm feeling stronger and stronger about as I continued my journey in my own business is like you were saying earlier, the starving artists, and there's a lot of like mural submissions for different clients and they're just trying to get free concepts, you know? And it's like conceptual conceptualization for me can take anywhere from it. And it depends on the budget, but anywhere from let's say five hours to for a minimal concept up to 60 hours. I mean, it really depends. And for me, I work on an hourly basis. Most muralists work by square feet when it comes to what the design is. But for me, I'm out, I do it hourly because why would I charge a client, let's say it's three shapes on a wall versus versus a hundred shapes. Why would I charge the client the same when it's just, you know, minimal versus maximalism and how that, you know, how that changes. But as far as I'm so done like submitting and this is now already like three years that I've stopped submitting to clients. They're asking for free concepts to then, Oh, if you're selected, then you'll get the budget for that. No, that's a tremendously unfair thing in the world, which is to crowdsource concepts and to mm -hmm. have every, all these artists working and then we'll pick, I, I feel like there, if that were to be fair, if there was more of a balance where everybody was paid to deliver a concept, the process is it, it really devalues the artist's time and, and ideas. Ideation, to me, 
is what I charge for. Mm-hmm. It can be a Nike, just do it. And it has the most value because it's not about being paid per word or if you came up with it in 10 seconds. It's like, hey, is this the essence of what you're trying to say? So coming with a client to a place of understanding of why you get paid what you get paid and what they get in return can be very gauzy. And Mm -hmm. depending again on their respect for what you do, if it's not a favorable relationship between us to engage in making some art, uh, write a play or do something, then there's no reason to start on it. You don't want to have that sort of struggle with the person over the art. You kind of want to birth it together. So you're the proud parents of something that is bigger and better than both of you, I, I hope. Jersey Kaczynski said that the principle of true art is not to portray, but to evoke. And I think you're a very evocative, forward-thinking contemporary artist. And it's, it's amazing to see the various disciplines you work in. And I would encourage the listener to go to your website, which is your name, Carolyn Guys, And Guys is spelled G-E-Y-S. Correct, yeah. CarolynGuys.com. And uh, also, are you at Carolyn Guys on Instagram? Yes. Okay. Keeping it consistent across all platforms, at Caroline Guys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's, it's amazing work. It's been described as playful and imaginative and inspired, and it is all that and much more. And I appreciate you investing some time to talk to us today. Thank you so much. This has been lovely. Thank you. Very nice to meet you. You too. Cheers. Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe, and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun because dot com is just two dot common and dot fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. You're called a creep.